0: Higgled History of pod with Alex
1: Diamond and Dave Crowley.
0: Hello and welcome to the Higgledy Piggledy History Hodgepod, the podcast that waits until you start laughing, then sneaks in and leaves enough information for you to win the yellow cheese in every game of Trivial Pursuit. I'm Dave Rattlehead Crowley, amateur history nerd, and I'm joined, as always, by the man who runs his diary, guided solely by the twin sons of Tatooine, history scholar Alex Darth
1: Diamond. Beautiful. Hello, mate. How are you? All right, pal, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, good. I'm very good, thanks. Really pleased to be back after our first season. Yes, a bit of a break and uh, and here we go again. Yeah. So uh,
0: let's see if we can uh, produce the same high standard. a scholarly uh, debate as we did before. Oh, I'm sure we can, absolutely. Yes, once the wine starts flowing, I'm sure we'll be fine. (laughs) And in this edition, we're taking a look at the not quite as well-known as Hastings, but probably better known than Surbiton, Battle of Stamford Bridge, and asking the question, home win for the English or away win for the absent French? Mm -hmm. So, Darth, uh, quite a monumental uh, point in, uh, in English history. Can you give us some outline of the events leading up to this battle, please?
1: Of course I can, yes. Um, everyone knows 1066, really, in the English-speaking world, but I'll give you a brief whistle-stop tour. King Edward the Confessor died childless on the 5th of January, the very beginning of 1066, leaving England without an obvious successor to the throne. We don't really know who Edward actually wanted to succeed him. we got all sorts of cl- conflicting accounts, but this confess. yeah he didn't confess to that one no, <laughs> no Sorry. quite famously so Actually, that was quite good i thought i liked that, that that's never occurred to me before that, that joke either um i'm far too much of a serious historian um of course. but it does you know th- this event his death without children sets in motion um all of the cogs and the gears that turn that end up in the norman conquest of 1066 and the battle of hastings um But before we get to Hastings, there's a lot more in between. So the day after Edward's death, he's buried in in Westminster Abbey and probably in the very same building, the the, the new Westminster Abbey as it was then. um, His widow's brother, so his brother-in-law, Harold, the Earl of Wessex, known to history as Harold Godwinson, was proclaimed King um, of England basically having told all of the nobles, the the Witan, uh, the, the nobles who were charged with electing him, that Edward on his deathbed had basically named him as his successor. They don't know that, of course. They were not in the room, but that's what he says. And there's no reason not to believe him, right? What he got to go? Exactly, yeah. Seems fairly legit. Um, so, yeah, he, he becomes the king. Harold Gobinson becomes king. And and the young Edgar Atheling, which people who know the story of the Norman Conquest well uh, will be aware of, who's Edward's grandnephew, um, he's really the only legitimate candidate for the throne in 1066. But um, for, for a couple of reasons, he's basically set aside. But he um, was only a child at the time. He was young, yes. Uh, he, he wasn't sort of he wasn't too young by medieval standards. He was probably about fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wouldn't be the youngest king ever in, in the Middle Ages, but yes, I think his age was one factor. Uh, another factor being that he he had no land and no no power base in England um uh, in 1066 whereas Harold Godwinson was the complete opposite of that you know he was the most powerful man after the king um and and he had several brothers who were in the witan as well so you know it was a fairly rigged election in some sense it was <laughs> yeah basically stop the game stop the count stop the count yeah <laughs> that, that was edgar outside protesting yeah <laughs> mm. so yeah um now uh, while Harold may well have persuaded the english establishment of, of his case Certain foreign rulers remained unconvinced uh, and instead sought to claim the English throne for themselves, most famously, of course, William, the Duke of Normandy, who claimed that Edward had promised him the throne several times before his death. Um, uh, and he is Edward's first cousin once removed on his mother's side. You'll, so have, to, just you'll just have to look just, that one up. Yeah.
0: His first cousin once removed and his brother, right? Okay. Yeah. So
1: uh, uh, that's you know, Edward's mother is Emma of Normandy, who is William the Conqueror's great aunt, basically. Right. Okay. Um. <laughs> so, uh, so that's one, and the other one, who we're going to talk more about today, is Harold Hardrada, who uh, was the king of Norway. And his claim to England was based on, on an agreement made in 1038 between his predecessor, King, King Magnus of Norway, and uh, Edward the Confessor's predecessor, King Arthur Canute, um, who's King of Denmark at this time. He eventually goes on to inherit England. But uh, at the time they make the agreement, but King Magnus and King Harthacnut Canute, they agree to be each other's heirs and successors. You know, if we die without children, you will succeed me and vice versa.
0: It was just basically sounded like a really good night on the piss. And he went, You know what? If I don't have kids, right, right,
1: that's the one rule. I want it to be you, pal. <laughs> yeah, that may well have happened. I mean, these two had been fighting a bit beforehand and eventually they came to terms. So maybe they did have a big piss up and said, Right, here, you know, let's go. You're best mate. Yeah, you're my best mate. I want you to look after my kingdom if I don't, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry about all that stuff I did earlier. You know, we've got a lot of goodwill built built up now. Yeah. And, all those all those prisoners and I let us not get caught <laughs> up in who you
0: know who. I mean? Exactly.
1: <laughs> it's all water under the Stamford Bridge.
0: <laughs> hey! mm. So uh,
1: um but that's a very weak claim because um at, at the time that, that agreement was made, Harthacnut Canute was only King of Denmark. So really the agreement only applied to Norway and Denmark. Harthacnut Canute then goes on to become King of England two years later in ten forty, and Hardrada Uses that and says ah that includes England then you know after the fact no oh, yeah come on mate no no yeah. <laughs> no no
0: no no, no. taking the piss this or, no. yeah just
1: slightly yes It's slightly less credulous than William the Conqueror's um, claim but there you go now most people focus on on the Norman side of this um, who you know, the Normans are the eventual winners and, and the Norman preparations for the invasion of England are well known and they're beautifully depicted on the Bayeux Tapestry.
0: Oh, here we go. Right, this is it. Your, your obsession with this bloody tapestry. Is <laughs> right. I'm sorry, but for a start, the phrase beautifully depicted does not describe anything on that horrendous...
1: Oh, here we go.
0: In it, it's, it's, essentially, it's the Fox News of its day. It's one-sided propaganda with dodgy graphics. Now, <laughs> my,
1: my, my auntie
0: right, went through a phase. I think it was my auntie. I might be doing someone else in the family a disservice. But she went through a phase of doing these as Christmas presents. Now, I vividly remember one Christmas, someone in the family being presented with a Kingfisher that had been Actually, that might be embroidery, not tapestry. But look, the, the, the principle's the same, right? Oh, it, it's, it's, yeah, well, it's
1: actually, the Bayo Tapestry is an embroidery to, in oh, your
0: well, defence. De- yeah. There you go. So she was presented with this tapestry embroidery, whatever you want to call it, of okay. a Kingfisher. And it looked like a Kingfisher. I mean, proper. like One look, Kingfisher that is, it didn't have a misshapen head or a leg that bent in the wrong place or anything like that, right? So don't tell me that these people were not capable with a bit of thought and effort of doing it properly because you see other medieval tapestries and things hanging from ceilings and you think, oh my God, that's a, that's an incredible piece of work. That's like, it's it's your wizard and chips. <laughs> it's your it's your Beezer comic of the day. It's just not very bloody good. And the, the amount of praise that you heap on it, I'm sorry, it's just out of all proportion.
1: Well, um, dear listeners, you'll have to forgive my philistine friend, uh, Dave Rattlehead Crowley, for that uh, tirade. Um, I don't know where to begin with this, Dave, honestly. I think we're going to, have to do a whole episode on the Bayer Tapestry now. Um, oh, I think
0: we, we should we should put a vote on the Facebook page and the Twitter page. Is the Bayer Tapestry shit? Well, Let the, let the listenership decide. I think it's the only fair way of doing it.
1: I can, I mean, look, there's a lot to unpack in what you've said. Obviously, if, if, your, if your auntie's Kingfisher embroidery dates from 1080s rather than the 1980s, I think you might have a point. Uh, but, I don't know when is, it was.
0: No, 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 no. <laughs> this isn't a question of technology, right? This, this isn't like saying well, they only had primitive tools to do this at the time, right? Your needle and your thread was the same. In the 11th century, as your needle and your thread is in the 20th century, right? It makes no difference, right? You can either do it or you can't. And the Kakandi village simpletons who made the tapestry oh. couldn't do it very well, whereas my aunt is pretty, pretty good at it. Lovely kinkwisher.
1: I think they. I think the tapestry is beautiful, and obviously, it's you know, it's, it's art history, right? So it is subjective. I can't. I can't chastise you for an opinion, a subjective opinion. It's your right to say it looks a bit naff.
0: But there's there's, there's a world difference between, you know, is it historically significant? Yes, grant you that it's historically significant, but that doesn't stop it being a shit tapestry.
1: (laughs) Well, I think uh, we're going to have to uh, disagree on that. (laughs) But, um, you know... you nothing like it survives from that time period, as far as I'm aware. I don't know whether it's the oldest embroidery that survives. In I mean, it's not complete. You know, we don't have the whole thing. And it's huge. I mean, have you actually been to see it, Dave? Oh, right, have. You I seen have, you have, no, been, I have to, been
0: to... Yeah. I think that's partly where my my, my my annoyance that it stems from, is the fact that I was taken to see it and expecting to see something breathtaking. And I didn't. I saw some shoddy clothmanship. And, <laughs> right, all my friend. And I, I remember vividly thinking... Did you complain
1: drink- to the Frenchman? And <laughs> I want to refund <laughs> you, bloody...
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I remember thinking at the time, I could be sat in the bar across the road uh, having a much more pleasant time drinking with the locals than looking at their shit tapestry. But I then think- again, I did think that they wouldn't be particularly uh, welcoming to my opinion on their tapestry.
1: So. P- probably not and i mean maybe maybe you and i should do a to do a trip there you know I, I can i can sort of take you around and 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 show you the error of your ways obviously i can't get you to to like a piece of art that you don't like but um yeah i mean for sure you at least you acknowledge that it's a very important source and um and its survival is quite miraculous because as i said okay you've got other tapestries you've got other embroideries from the Middle Ages, but I think most of them are much later. Um, I don't think we have a great deal of stuff like this from from the 11th century, but I could be wrong on that. I'd, I'd need to double-check.
0: Maybe it was just the, the 11th century fashion in tapestry was to do shit figures then. I mean, you don't know, do you? It could well be that that was what was in vogue, and even at the time people went... You're just well, winding me up, the- now, aren't you? <laughs> that don't look very good, does it, Marvin? I think- It's all the rage these days.
1: Dave, a a few days ago, we discussed our favourite Star Wars films, right? And you (laughs) gave your list. And what did I say? I said, Dave, I disagree, but I respect your opinion on these matters. This is not one of those moments. (laughs) Right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well... I'm sorry, but as soon as I saw the notes that you'd made for this episode and I saw the phrase beautifully depicted <laughs> next to Bayer Tapestry, I thought he's not having that. He's not getting away with that.
1: Not having it. Okay, right. We can, right. We, can we can talk about this forever. What I will say, I'll, let me make this final point, which um is a good one actually, because you said at the start, which I quite liked, sort of Fox News comparison yes. yep. and its propaganda. Yeah. And it and um what I would offer as a as a caveat to that, as a corrective, is that yeah. the Bayeux Tapestry is a is a Norman source, you know, in quotation marks, right? It's made in England actually, but under Norman auspices, right? It's it's commissioned by Bishop Odo, uh, almost certainly. Um, but but historians reckon we reckon that the 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 actual people who did the embroidery itself were probably English, and they they didn't quite. Um, fulfill their brief in telling a very norman slanted jaundiced story and ah, right. and they, they manage to sneak in because uh, um, some of the um some of the scenes have a, have words written on it as well okay so it's not yes, just yeah. art history they actually they, they they do have some phrasing telling you what each scene is and they often they're very purposefully ambiguous some of the wording Uh, case in point is harold godwinson swearing his oath right if you if you remember that scene he goes to normandy allegedly and swears an oath that he will support william's claim to the throne when edward eventually pops his clogs um but the tapestry doesn't go into any detail it just simply says here's here harold swears an oath and so it it leaves the question of well what is he doing is he just swearing an oath or is he actually promising William the throne? Because the Normans would want it to be very clear, wouldn't they? Harold promised William that he would support his claim to the throne. Blah blah blah. But I think the English uh, makers, the producers of the tapestry, uh, took a bit of discretion there. Um, so it might not be as Fox Newsy as I think most people think.
0: And it may also be as well. Then that see that opens up a whole other world. That does. It may be that the disorder was placed for this tapestry. And these English workers well, who's this for then? The French. Oh, they're just making shit. What are <laughs> gonna do about it? So we're basically now talking about an eleventh century version of Wish and what this is what I ordered and this is what I got. And the reason it survived is because the French hung it on the wall saying, like, This is a warning don't order from those English bastards because this is what you get when
1: you pay all that money. I think that's an interesting theory. I'll, I'll leave it with you. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen it in publication, but <laughs> make sure that's... a good laugh, yeah.
0: Okay, so seeing as I 90% of what we've recorded so far is now going to have to be cut Yeah. because it's just dribble. Let's, let's uh, move on to what we're actually talking about today. Yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> all right, so... We're not gonna be talking about the Norman invasion <laughs> depicted on the Bayer Tapestry, whether you think it's beautiful or not. Um we're gonna be talking about the, the the Norwegian invasion that comes from from Harold Hardrada. Um, no, the
0: Norwegians don't have any tapestries to speak of.
1: As far as I'm aware, there is no tapestry depicting the yeah. uh, Norwegian invasion. Pray <laughs> continue Yeah. It would be a bloody miserable one for them to commission <laughs> uh, a resounding defeat, as it was, as we'll see, <laughs> for uh, Hardrada. Um, um, should we talk about Harold's life a bit before 1066, and then if, we, it, if, it, if it if it makes the cut, it does. If not, who cares? No, I think, I think
0: we should. And I I was just have to say this as an aside, Harold Hardrada sounds like a hip hop
1: star from the early eighties. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it really does do it. Sorry, <laughs> no, it's
1: a great name. Um I should explain. Yeah, Hardrada basically means hard ruler. He was a bit of a, you know, take no shit kind of guy. Oh, right. I okay. uh, don't get on the wrong side of him. He was a, a tough, stern ruler is essentially where that name comes from. It's, it's a nickname, Hard rather hard, hard Ruler. Um, so he's born uh, in about 1015. And when he was born, his, old, his older half-brother, Olaf II, had just become king of Norway. So he's sort of in the royal family. It's he's, he's, he's a maternal half-brother. Um, the previous king, Swain, had actually died in England, having just conquered England in 1014. That's the the other conquest of England that happens in the 11th century. Again, we're not going to talk go into much detail, but Swain and his son, Canute, conquer England in the early 11th century. So and they're, they're the both... The spell-checker's delight. Yeah, Canute, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're both in England uh, when Swain dies, which obviously leaves the the throne of Norway open for the taking. Uh, and therefore, Harold Hardrada's brother gets in there, Olaf. Uh, but Olaf is eventually forced out of his position in 1028. And he's exiled by forces loyal to Canute, who, um, who obviously eventually comes back and reclaims the throne. And Harold does support his brother. Olaf tries to make a comeback after he's exiled, but they get defeated in battle. Olaf dies, and Harold goes into exile. Um, and he basically, for the next fifteen years, he lives his best Viking life. Uh, he, he travels around uh, sort of Eastern Europe, really, as a mercenary captain slash adventurer. He goes to the um, Kievan Rus spend some time as as a commander in the army of the grand prince yaroslav there uh, he then goes on to constantinople where he becomes the commander of the famous varangian guard which is sort of the they're like the personal elite imperial yeah. bodyguard unit of the, of the emperor there and he sees he sees action all over the place possibly in the holy land Um, but certainly over the Eastern Mediterranean and he 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 amasses a huge amount of wealth in in this grand tour you know he's he's really is living his best Viking life killing people and getting paid a lot of money to do it Um, and uh, so after he's acquired so much wealth he eventually leaves the east and goes back to Norway to try and reclaim the throne and this is 1042 now in his absence possibly to his knowledge, even though he's on the other side of Europe, um, following Canute's death in 1035, the Norwegian throne had been taken by Olaf's son, right? So this is his, his nephew now, Magnus, Magnus the Good. And Harold comes back a few years later, 1046, and makes peace with his nephew and says, okay, you know, I've got all this money. You're the king. Why don't we rule together? And... Magnus says to his uncle yeah that sounds pretty good Uh, and so they rule together for a year Magnus then dies I don't think it's under suspicious circumstances but you never quite know in the middle ages and Harold that's how Harold basically becomes uh, the sole ruler of Norway in 1047 and this is the period where he gets his um, nickname right so domestically he was a fierce ruler crushing anyone who opposed him Um, and you know, be- became a pretty good medieval ruler, really. Um, that That's what you had to do to be good. Um, and uh, because of this, his reign was probably quite peaceful and stable um, and probably goes down in history as-, as a good Norwegian king, probably trying to recreate a sort of North Sea Norse empire that Canute had. You know, Canute was king of England, Denmark, Norway. And I think Harold's trying to do that as well he tries to claim the danish throne a couple of years before 1066 and that doesn't work and and he and he's never able to to conquer denmark but he eventually finds an opportunity to try uh, his luck at england so there he's got his flimsy excuse yes he's got he's, he's found that old agreement you know gone to the archives and yeah. uh, blown the cobwebs out of a few books <laughs> and, oh yeah that'll work but really I mean, it's it's Edward's death, obviously, that precipitates this, but it's likely that he makes an alliance with a disgruntled Englishman. Hmm. So just going back a little bit before 1066, in October of 1065, the, the Northumbrians in England, so we're under Edward the Confessor's reign, they revolt against the local earl, right? And this guy's called Tostig, Earl Tostig of Northumbria. He's been the earl there for 10 years. Yeah. And he's Harold Godwinson's brother. And the Northumbrians revolt against him for reasons that are unclear, but it possibly is that he was doing a good job as the local earl and the Northumbrians didn't like that. They didn't want to be ruled, basically. <laughs> uh, not least by a southern softy like Tostig, who comes from Wessex, right? So um, they basically kick him out and Tostig uh, is forced into exile, really. Bit of a scandal. Uh, uh, Because mainly because Harold, his brother, won't really help him out. He basically says, well, if the the Northumbrians won't have you, there's no point in us trying to help you. So Tostig buggers off um, and and, and he he leaves England. And he spends the next sort of nine months treating with foreign rulers around the North Sea world, trying to gain support to to get back his earldom, which was a normal thing. Tosti's proper got his ass in his hands at this point. He's not happy. No, he's not happy at all. And and again, he's not doing anything unusual. You know that this pattern of you get exiled, you spend a bit of time abroad doing whatever you can and then you try and make a comeback, right? Sometimes through force of arms. I mean the, the Godwinsons had done this themselves actually in, in the early ten fifties.
0: It's just, it's a sort of medieval equivalent of, of you you've got a job, you're not happy, so you jack it in, you go to work on a cruise ship or in a bar in yeah. a bar in Torremolinos. Or to go to Australia yeah. to find yourself yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, faff about for eighteen months yeah. and then decide that it was much easier when mommy did your washing and you could get a McDonald's <laughs> around the corner, uh, you bugger up over again.
1: Yes, uh, perhaps that was exactly what was going through Tostig's mind um, as he <laughs> as he decided it was time to come back, and he he tries he tries uh, going to Flanders, um, who I think the Count Count Baldwin does give him some troops and some money. Um, Count Baldwin, Count Baldwin, yeah.
0: In an age of great names, the famed and Magnus the Good, Baldwin Baldwin. got the shit end of the stick,
1: didn't he? I I don't know. I really like Baldwin. I think it's a great name. I'm not sure I'd have the courage to call my own child Baldwin, (laughs) but (laughs) don't go, Baldwin. (laughs) Baldwin does give him some some supplies and money and troops and what have you, and eventually Tostig ends up in Scotland, but he does make contact with Harold Hardrada and basically says. I will support your invasion of England, come in, I know, the, I know the local area, I'll give you troops and money and ships to go with your invasion, come in and um, you can have the throne, you know, kick my brother, because of course by now, Harold Godwinson is the king, huh. and he, you know, Tostig is not happy about that at all even though they're family, they, yeah, by this point, they really don't like each other. And so he says, kick the other Harald off, you can become king and I can go back to being the Earl of Northumbria and have my McDonald's around the corner. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> we've, got, we've got the what actually happens, right? Um, Harold Hardrada sets sail from Norway with his invasion fleet at the start of September 1066. Uh, as Ben said to us, if you remember in the talk that he did on the Vikings, they probably yeah. go like down. They they sort of island hop from Norway. Is it through Shetland and Orkney? Yes, and then yes. and pick yeah. up more troops there because they're they're Norwegian basically there. probably some duty free while they're. Out oh, absolutely, well. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's he's got a fleet of somewhere between three hundred and five hundred ships. Okay so that that's a sizable it's a fair old size sizable fleet yeah um and he linked up with Tostig who's, who's probably added some more maybe as much as 60 ships and and his own troops as well and they and they link up um at the Tyne and then from there they sail south to the Humber and up the Ouse to York right which is the most important city in England in in the, in the north of England I should say mm. okay and that's the, that's the first invasion that comes um to England in 1066. Now the first response from the English to this invasion, it c- comes from the local earls, uh, the brothers Edwin and Morcar. You may be familiar with them, um, you may have heard of them. Edwin is the Earl of Mercia mm-hmm. and yes, his brother, so well brother Morcar is. Uh, he was the one who replaced Tostig as the Earl of, of Northumbria <laughs> when he got kicked out. So he's also not on the topic Christmas card list, right? So these two um, basically are, are the first responders to this invasion. They they gather the local levies from their earldoms in the north and the Midlands, and they, and they meet the invaders in battle at Fulford, which is just south of York, uh, on the banks of the River Ouse, right? And this is the twentieth of September that that battle takes place. Hmm. They're heavily outnumbered, probably. I think ha- Hardrada's army probably numbers about ten thousand. Again, the usual caveats apply: risk warnings about numbers. But um, I don't think Edwin and Morcar have anywhere near that. Um, so because it's just the local levies. Because uh, Harold Godwinson, the king, is all the way on the south coast, waiting for the invasion from William the Conqueror. Yeah. So he, you know, he expects Duke William to be coming first. He doesn't expect Hardrada to come. So it's up to Edwin and Morka to basically put up a fight against this Viking horde and it doesn't go well for them. They get soundly beaten. They they do inflict some casualties on, on the on the enemy but they are mainly killed, drowned, put to flight. Uh, Edwin and Morka survive the, the battle but they don't really play any other major part in 1066 in the campaigns most likely because they're licking their wounds from this battle. Also because they don't they're not wholly committed to Harold Godwinson either. They're they're not his greatest fans. They're, they've traditionally been <laughs> rivals. After, after, after he failed to supply
0: any support whatsoever. As this great <laughs> Viking Horde descended on him, what could they possibly be upset with there? Oh yeah, that's a good point. Um He's on Holiday in Brighton. <laughs> <Do you what? laughs> that's the message I got. Apparently, he's
1: on the beach and he ain't moving. For God's sake. Yeah, he's he's parked on Easy Street there. <laughs> Um, uh, so yes, Fulford is a is a defeat for the English, and Hardrada and Tostig, who, who's obviously fighting with him, uh, repaired to York and 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 stay there. That they're given hostages and and they sort of make peace with the local Yorkshire population, right, and say, look, we're here to stay. Can you imagine trying to make peace with the people of Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> it does help if you've got ten
0: thousand armed men. I imagine, yeah, yeah. but yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry, people of Yorkshire, I didn't
1: mean that. <laughs> so at this point, Harold Godwinson eventually decides that he's had enough of the sunny south coast, and um, realizes that this has happened, um, and basically says, "Okay, it's time to to react." Right? Because he had he had been waiting for William to to cross the channel, but the, the the Norman attack never came, and we can come back to that if you like. Upon hearing of Harold's invasion. He immediately gathers the troops, abandons the south coast and marches very, very, very quickly. I cannot stress that enough. Um up to up to the north, right? He covers three hundred kilometers in just four days. I mean that's that's bloody good going. Yeah. Yeah. When you can see we're not talking about him up the M one here, you know, <laughs> exactly, the noisy right. tarmac road. No, so, these roads are are sort of famously local council esque potholes everywhere. You can you know, I mean you're lucky what if an army goes sort of 30 kilometers in a day normally and they've done they've done 300 kilometers in just four days right it would normally take over twice as long to cover that distance so very 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 quick march and such was the speed of the english that they were able to catch the the norwegian army which was camped just beyond york unawares more or less completely unawares basically still in bed um and this is this this is where we get the battle that we're finally going to talk about Stanford Bridge, right? Oh
0: yes, that was where we started this conversation <laughs> <Yeah. wasn't it? laughs> with right. the immortal words from you I'll give you a bit of background
1: <laughs> but not, to, not too much just yeah. to get us going at, at the risk of being hard I think it's slight. You, you are slightly to blame for the Bayo tapestry uh, bloody <laughs> well, To be honest, when you said he
0: went 300 kilometers in four days it did occur to me to say he was that pissed off that that bloody tapestry showed them all preparing to come over here, and then nothing. <laughs> I knew it was a load of bollocks. Oh, I'm trying yeah. but I thought, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. Again. Well, yeah, <laughs> and that's that
1: a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, Harold has uh,
0: picked everyone up, spoilt their beach holiday. Yeah. So all these blokes have had to drop their kiss me quick apps, put their armour on. Swap the candy floss for Macy's and pikes. They're not happy. They've pitched up, found all these Norwegians in bed. Yes, and it kicks off.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so they come. They come upon uh, on Harold Hardrada's army at Stamford Bridge, um, which is a place name that still exists just beyond York. It's on the River Derwent, I think. And this is we're now tw- the morning of the twenty fifth of September. Now, uh, later legend. Right, which is which comes from the 12th and 13th centuries, you know, like the um, Scandinavian sagas. Yeah. Uh, that th- There's one such saga written by a guy who's got a brilliant name, Snorri Sturluson. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but Snorri is great, <laughs> right. right. um, And he's written this uh, Heimskringler, I think that's how you're pronouncing it, saga. Uh, well, I, I'm certainly not going to offer anything alternative, <laughs> yes. so we'll go with that. And he basically said that Before the battle, a single man from the English rode up alone to Hardrada and Tostig and offered the latter the return of his earldom if he would turn coat and come back to the English side, right? I'll give you your earldom back. And Tostig asked, well, what will my brother give to Harold Hardrada, who's also come a long way and has gone to such trouble to come he's to England? He's come all this way. <laughs> yes. you know, he is my mate, after yeah, all. Yeah, come, come on. Up, no, I promise you lot. <laughs> yeah. what, what, what can you do for him? So the rider says, I'll give him seven feet of English ground as he's taller than most men. <laughs> Basically saying I'll bury him in the dirt, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then off he rides. And Hardrada was impressed by by the guile and the boldness of this man and said, Who was that, Tosti? And he said, That was my brother, Harold, right? Yeah. That's the that's the legend, which is of course, I'm sure, rubbish. Uh, not Oh uh, no, don't don't I'm spoil sorry. it. I really like that bit. Right. It would be difficult to surprise them after that, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that is that. <laughs> yeah. Who was that rider? Oh, that's Harold. Oh I'm sure he hasn't come with an army, has he? Probably not. That's not <laughs> his job. <laughs> cracking story. Yeah, though. It is a cracking story, but I've got another good story for you, Dave, which I think is more believable. Got it. Which is an account that comes from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, which is more contemporary, describing how the the battle basically started. Which is the English had caught the Norwegians unawares, but their advance mm. into the Norwegian camp was delayed because they were trying to cross the bridge itself. Because the Norwegians mm. obviously camped by the river, you know, securing their frontier, what have you. Um, and so they tried to cross the bridge, which obviously served as a as a bottleneck, a choke point. But one Norwegian axeman decided it was his job to basically bro- block the entire English vanguard from getting across. He was of maybe he was not asleep, or he was a scout. Who knows? But he basically sets upon this bridge with his axe and he's cutting them down like something out of Lord of the Rings, Gimli style, you know. <laughs> racking up his kill count as these English try to get past him. He's, he's, he's a berserker, right? And he cuts down loads of English troops, and, and eventually the English, who are very cunning, of course, uh, they, they sneak under the bridge after they've lost far too many men at this point, and they they creep under the bridge, um, and they use um, a spear to basically jab up through the the wooden boards of the of the bridge, right in his crown jewels, uh, <laughs> un- underneath his underneath his armor, right underneath his mail coat, his hauberk. Ow. yeah. So not a great way to go, but he he, he did go down in history.
0: Uh, that, that that's going to be sore in the morning. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um. That's how the battle starts, right? And that slight delay possibly allowed or probably indeed allowed the Norwegians to put up some sort of resistance and they were able to form up the shield wall which was the standard tactic of battle the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings do this but they were not fully armoured up they hadn't got time you know they had left their armour behind in, in in the heat of the moment that's
0: that's that's. It's not what? like no. even your contact
1: lenses, is it? When you
0: know, oh, I'll be all right. I've got my glasses. It's really not going to make that much difference. Leaving you, leaving you behind the very thing that's going to save your life on, on the the battlefield.
1: Bit yeah. of, bit of an oversight, really. No, that's true. Prior planning went amiss there, really, and <laughs> and it was, as you've hinted, potentially problematic that they were without this uh, armor, um, and and so as the attrition of battle raged on. Um, and we don't we don't have many of the details, unfortunately, unlike Hastings. But it does seem that this counted against them. It did go on for for hours, but the Norwegians were um, basically annihilated. But at the end of it, and, and Hardrada himself was killed in battle, possibly by a throat uh, in, in the arrow, uh, sorry, by a throat in the arrow, possibly by an arrow in the throat, uh, and Tostig <laughs> was also killed in in battle. Uh, as well. So, you know, in terms of the efficacy, really not good. It did not have its desired effect for the Norwegians here uh, at all. Um, um, when
0: we when, when we started this, uh, this episode, we said about home win for the English or away win for the absent French, and this is where we get to the crux of this, really, isn't it? Because although uh, Harold took his troops up there and repelled this uh, Scandinavian force, it was at a cost.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, so, I mean, in in real terms, obviously, he lost men fighting this battle, but it, it couldn't really have gone any better for the English uh, th- at this point. Harold had, had done brilliantly. Uh, Harold Gobinson, that is. Um, he had marched up very, very quickly, caught the Norwegians by surprise and had won a decisive victory, killing Hardrada and killing Tostig. So much so, uh, do you remember how I said there were probably 300 to 500 ships that they had sailed with? Yeah. Um, well, the evidence says that basically about 20 to 24 made it home. Good grief. Um, so pretty much an, an, an annihilation. they properly pissed off in the muff licenses on Shetland. Yeah, they stopped the it all up and yeah.
0: they return home and they said, oh, Christ almighty, what are we going to do
1: with all this? Apparently, Paul, who uh, is the Earl of Orkney, he was one of the few survivors of note. So he does make it back to Orkney, bless him. Um, but not many others do. And so, yeah, talking about this, it definitely is a home win for the English. It's a major home win. The the English state fights three battles in 1066, and and this is the one they really win big. So if there is a home win, it is this one. It can only be this one. But as you said, it comes at a cost. Harold's is still up north when Duke William the Conqueror crosses the English Channel and because Harold has abandoned the south coast, quite rightly, he had to do that, William was able to cross and land safely at Pevensey uh, on the 28th or the 29th of September, just a few days after the battle. So did
0: did, did William know at this point that, that the English army had departed north?
1: That's a very good question, and it's debated. I don't have a clear answer for you, but it is the right question to ask. The Norman sources, right, portray it as divine providence the winds changed at the right time because william Mm. was allegedly ready to go um long before this but winds had prevented him from crossing right adverse winds Mm. and it just so happens that (laughs) a few days after harold abandons the defense of the south coast the winds change and allow william to cross so that's one option it was just pure luck right that's option one Mm. it was pure luck um I'm a bit sceptical of that. I am willing to believe, and we don't have direct evidence for this, but I'm willing to believe that William knew he had spies. You know, we we know that spies were a thing in in this time period. Mm. Uh, We spoke about it, didn't we, in the First Crusade? Mm. So Mm. it's not outrageous to think that William had spies in England um, who basically said... Come over now! They've all bloody gone because it—you know—the it, Norman Conquest would have been over before it started had had Harold been on the beach. They would have cut them down as they got off the boats. Mm. Um, so I really think that William knew, yes, that that Harold had had abandoned the south coast and, and was able to make the crossing. That's my own view. It is speculation. I can't prove it, but I can. I, can, I think that there is a circumstantial case for it. Um, yeah so he's thinking he knew uh, and
0: he heads over and uh, I suppose just in purely terms of of um, the, the state of uh, of harold's troops they've legged it up the country as we already established in, in yeah. super fast time to fight this battle they've then had uh, a battle which although they've won is obviously Oh, you know, we're not talking about building a brick barbecue here, are we? You know, so <laughs> no a little bit
1: not. of uh, a Sunday afternoon exertion, and they're probably matched in terms of numbers. I should say about yeah. probably ten thousand apiece. Yeah.
0: So they've had a pitch battle, and now
1: they're having to rush back down the country. That's it. And this is this is the where you start to criticize Harold Gobinson a bit because he's he's done really everything right so far. He was right to protect the south coast. He was right to abandon it when Harold Hardrada invaded he was right to rush up and surprise him and win a great victory and then of course he hears that william has crossed over and of course he has to protect his throne he does rush back down south again so the men who are already exhausted as as you've said have to do it all over again and by this point harold starts to lose troops you know men die on the way or they get sick and they desert whatever he's and so that that rush back south first to london um, and then more critically from London to Hastings to, to meet William in battle. thats the key, That's the key error that historians think he makes.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we would love to get your feedback. If you want to say nice things or just point out all our the errors, then please do get in touch. You're at HP History Pod on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email hphistorypod at mail.com. Thanks for listening.